I guess we've all heard of people being arrested for disturbing the peace. It seems when you do certain things that cause other people's feathers to get ruffled or uh, to get upset for one reason or another, uh, you have disturbed the way that they are, disturbed their ability to live in peace and in quiet, and then somehow encroached upon what they feel are their rights. So they call in and say, the peace is being disturbed here, and ask the authorities in the land to do something about it. So if you are disturbing others by your conduct, there are penalties, can be fines, depending on how serious infraction, perhaps even jail time, for disturbing the peace of others. Now, I want to approach the subject today and go back to the first time that the peace was disturbed, because throughout the universe and all of God's great kingdom, there was peace, security, happiness, and joy. And then because of certain attitudes that began to develop in one being, he decided that he should let his discontent be known among others, the things that upset him about the way God Almighty was doing things. And he began a rebellion. That rebellion took one-third of the holy angels of God and caused them to begin to think negative, to begin to have prejudice, to begin to not like the way things, way things, way God did things in the universe. And on and on it went until they were so discontent, so upset, that they decided to make war in heaven against God and His government and the peace and the tranquility that had been. They'd worked themselves into a froth, essentially over nothing in that particular case. God had done nothing wrong. God had done nothing but bless, protect, help, strengthen, and bless all those around him in the heavenly kingdom that he had made. Wouldn't you think that under those conditions, no one would ever take exception or get upset or angry over whatever? But all it took was a little vanity, a little ego, a little selfishness, whereby one who was an archangel of God began to feel that he was underappreciated, not needed as much as he thought he should be, or his beauty and his productivity was not recognized enough, or whatever may have entered into the picture that did not suddenly seem quite fair to him. There was somebody more important in the scheme of things in the universe than he was. And that bothered him. He became jealous. He became envious. And first thing you know, he began spreading his discontent among others. He had become selfish. 
and lonely in it, I suppose, because he wanted to share his feelings with others. He couldn't bottle them up. He had to vent at someone. And in a sense, he had a captive audience. He had all those who were under him in authority. And it was that third of the angels that were under the archangel Hillel, who became Satan, that are the ones that rebelled. So his sphere of influence and the government of God was used against God because he was, after all, in charge. And he had power and influence over those in his charge. And he used that influence to disturb the peace of the entire universe. We read of this, at least in part, back in Second Peter 2. Verse 4, he's, he's talking in this chapter about covetousness and the things that are negative in terms of human or uh, even angelic attitudes. I won't go through all of that, but in verse 4, For if God spared not the angels who became demons that sinned, but cast them down to Tartaru, is the correct word for hell there, uh, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. So they had to be restrained, had to be chained up for disturbing the peace that was the kingdom of God in the universe. And spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now I want to focus a bit here on Noah, because Satan was not always restrained in chains, nor in chains, neither were his demons. They were put down upon this earth, and then God decided that he would create man, and he would put man through a lifetime on this earth to learn by Trial, difficulty, problems, tribulations, sins, whatever man decided to go through to learn that there's only one way that works. That the vanity, ego, selfishness, pride of man creates problems. So he created man and woman and put them in a beautiful garden where they had everything they could possibly need including each other, no loneliness. And this being, who had spread his discontent to a third of the angels, now attacked the man and woman and spread his discontent to them. And they listened. Now there's a mistake. Any time there is someone who is discontent, upset, frustrated, and wants to spread their frustration, and we choose to listen, we are creating problems for ourselves because we are spreading the disturbance of the peace. And God looks down upon that and tells us not to listen to those 
who are in a negative attitude. I talked about that at the feast a little bit, that we need to love someone who is in a negative attitude and approach enough not to enable them by listening to them. That was that fell upon deaf ears for the most part, I think, because we have extreme difficulty as human beings not listening to those things where somebody might be put down or whatever. And that has been the history throughout the universe. From time immemorial, when Satan began to spread his discontent and those under him listened. And then the first two human beings made the mistake of listening. And their world came apart because they began to react with envy, jealousy, selfishness, blaming each other, blaming God, and their whole world fell apart. Now that continued on for about 1,600 years, more or less, perhaps a little more. And we want to pick the story up here in Genesis 5. Remembering that God loves peace. Peace is one of the greatest attributes of God, and the absence of peace in his universe upsets him terribly. Now the earth, in Genesis 6, came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, daughters were born to them, and it talks about them marrying the ones they wanted because they were good-looking and so on, whoever they chose. Now, I'm not going to get into all the arguments about what this was about, whether it was about simple human giants or whether it were about demons that married women and all that. There are all kinds of theories because this is a very unclear passage. And I don't want to waste time on that because there's a bigger issue here. So let's bypass all that and pick up on what the real problem was. Verse 3, The Eternal said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, so he was talking to men here, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. Now God did not lower at this point, the age, average age of people from around a thousand years down to 120. Uh, later on, he lowered it to, to, to 500, 250, and finally settled on about 70 years was the last proclamation he made. What he's talking about here is I'm going to give it 120 years, and then I'm going to destroy this society. God does not like the peace of the universe impaired at all. Then it talks about the giants and so on. We'll again bypass that and go to verse 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man, wickedness is the issue here, unrighteousness. The wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. Man had degenerated until he had come to the point that the works of the flesh, as enumerated in Galatians 5, had become so prevalent that that's all he saw. 
envy, vanity, jealousy, selfishness, hurting others, violence, as we'll see a little later on, murder. And it repented the Eternal that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Grief is a very powerful emotion. Human nature, abetted by Satan, and what it produces is something that is a grief to God in heaven. And the Eternal said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repents me that I have made them. He began to think, did I make a mistake in creating human beings and thinking that I could bring them from that state to have my approach and mindset and emotion toward life and give them eternal life? But Noah found grace in the eyes of the eternal. Noah at this point, was a man alone. Enoch had been a preacher of righteousness, but God had removed him from the scene. He didn't go to heaven. No man has except he which came down. Not even David, it says in Acts. So, that aside, Enoch had been removed from the scene. And Noah was the only one left out of all the peoples on the earth who found grace in God's eyes who was righteous enough that God said, now there's a man that I appreciate. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man, righteous man. He did things God's way. And perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. Now, argument has been made as to whether or not there had been any intermarriage between races or whatever. I don't want to get into any of that today. That isn't my point. But he was a man who was just, a man who was obedient to God, and he found favor as a result, no matter what his pedigree. And he had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It says then in verse 11, The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So murder had become commonplace. You didn't like somebody, you killed them. It's getting more and more that way in our age today. God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. Corrupted the way of God, I think, because that's what truly is corrupted. Now, man corrupts his own way, but it is God's way that is being corrupted when we do not do things God's way. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. Now, perhaps it was getting, as he said, it would be here in the end time, that if he didn't intervene, no flesh would be saved alive. But he may be also saying here in the same breath, I'm going to end the life of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. The earth itself. Was, that, that which they had corrupted, the earth, would be used to destroy them. And we know the story about how the flood came upon the earth, water from above and water from below and beneath the surface, and drowned them all. 
So the earth itself rebelled against them. It does say in the book of Revelation, Woe to those who pollute the earth. And we are in the process today of polluting the earth with every chemical imaginable and doing things contrary to God. And there is war and rumor of war and more war on its way, so there is much, much violence in the earth. Let's go for a moment back to... Well, no, let's, let's not go there yet. I'll, I'll go later. Let's continue what we're doing here. So I told him to go build a boat. And this boat would be four and a half football fields long, approximately. Big enough to haul only eight people, as it turned out, because God had mercy on Noah and his three sons and their wives, and his wife. But it held all animals on earth, the creep or crawl or draw air. Not the fish of the sea, but everything, bird, mammal, reptile, everything that needs air to breathe, God preserved in two-by-two two fashion, or for the clean animals, seven of each, seven pairs. So we won't read through all that. I want to get to the point here. The Eternal said to Noah, chapter 7, Come you and all your house into the ark, for you have I seen righteous before me in this generation. So all arguments about who was who and all that can be put aside for the moment. This is a situation that has to do with unrighteousness and righteousness. And he was the only one found righteous. Let's understand that Noah was in a very difficult situation. Everyone on earth, save he and perhaps his family who have been trained by him, were anti-God. Everything they were doing was contrary to the way of God. And I am sure that Noah was persecuted greatly, being the only man in society which had grown then probably into, into millions, if not billions, of people. 1,600 years of people essentially not dying, living a 1,000 years, and they can breed and multiply quite rapidly. The only soul on earth. That must have been a very lonely feeling, you know? To hold to a set of rules, to live by those, and no one around you agreed with you and thought you were strange, odd, and weird and put you down continually. And then somebody who is judged a nutcase because of his behavior and the preaching of righteousness that he did that no one would listen to started building a boat where there was no water. Now he was a total nutcase. And he built on that boat for approximately a hundred years, being laughed at, jeered at, and called that crazy man. And yet he went out and continued to try to preach righteousness to those people who wanted nothing of it. He was the only man on earth who desired the peace of God. Everyone else solved their problems through lying, cheating, defrauding, and murder. That is what society had become. 
So the waters came, and all mankind, save eight souls, were wiped out. You know what? There was peace. God found a way, and all that hatred and animosity, jealousy and envy, and the fruit of the, or the works of the flesh, to find peace. I want to go back to chapter 5 and verse 29. About when Noah was born. Verse 28, it says, Lamech lived 182 years and begat a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, This same, or this boy, shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the eternal has cursed. Somehow Lamech felt when Noah was born that rest and peace would come as a result of Noah's life. The word Noah, the name, is 5146, and Strong's meaning rest. It comes from 5117, meaning quiet or a resting place. God did not like the disturbing of the peace that occurred in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> he cursed the ground that Noah would till. He cursed the produce of Eve <clears throat> and gave her pain and trouble in childbirth. <clears throat> he cast them out of the garden and made life difficult for them. And they'd been suffering under that, working by the sweat of their brow with thorns and thistles and problems, and it was very difficult to make a living. Very difficult to live in peace and in prosperity. And under those conditions, human nature, influenced by Satan, becomes very raw. And it had. But the name came to mean something. The earth, for a short while, was at rest. They've talked about how the Colt 45 was the peacemaker of the American West. Shoot them all and let God sort them out was kind of the theory. And certainly, if you're at war with someone and you shot them, then it became peaceful. They didn't give you trouble anymore. <clears throat> However, that was not a godly way of handling the situation. And God showed what he thought of about that by what he did in Noah's day. But peace came. Why do people disturb the peace? I. One letter. Self. They don't like something. They don't like someone. They don't like conditions. They don't like the way things are. They are upset. Whether what they're upset about is good, bad, or indifferent makes no difference. It is something that they don't like for whatever reason. And that's where envy, jealousy, and selfishness surfaces because of the big eye. That's the way it had with Satan. 
That's the way it worked with Adam and Eve and mankind until all but eight were wiped out. And if we go through with the story in Genesis, we find that man did not multiply much on the face of the earth until the whole thing started all over again. And God put a people through slavery for 430 years. And it was not long after they were released from that with happiness and joy and singing that they got uncomfortable with conditions. They didn't like the way things were. And so they disturbed the peace by saying, you brought us out here in this desert to die. Now, the truth of the matter was, God had not brought them out there to die. God had not brought Moses out there to die or to curse them. God had trained Moses for many men in the desert at Midian. Through 80 years, he trained Moses, but Moses could do nothing right in the eyes of the people. He had brought them out there to die. Now, God had put them through 430 years of misery, of slavery, of trying to humble them, to get rid of the pride and the selfishness that is so germane to human existence. And yet, the moment they got a bit thirsty or a little uncomfortable, God was bad and Moses was bad. See how quickly to a completely different attitude. The moment I feel threatened in any way. Isn't it amazing? So anger, frustration, hate, negativity, venting, whatever we might use that is a negative emotion <clears throat> is all about me. It's all about self. Because that is what human nature is all about. Let's go to Matthew 5 and see what Christ began to teach immediately. He had observed all these things with Satan, with Adam and Eve, with the violent culture that came as a result of sin. He had observed what happened in the days of Noah. He had chained some of the demons and Satan, perhaps for a while, so that they could not continue to wreak havoc and disturb the peace on the face of the earth, and perhaps even went and preached to some of the demons that he was restraining while the ark was preparing, as Peter says. So he was familiar with the process of how peace is disrupted, where it goes, what happens to it, and what has to be done in order to resolve it. Now, don't we all want peace, security, and harmony? Everybody does. We don't want our peace to be disturbed. And yet, we do the things that destroy peace, that destroy harmony. And we hate ourselves sometimes for it. But we do it anyway. And it's so easy to do, isn't it? A word here, a dig there, a little knife in the back. It is so easy to forsake the love of God 
and try to hurt or destroy those that we have feelings about because we don't like what they think or what they do or how they are. We might be right about them. We might be wrong about them. It doesn't matter. It's our feelings, personally, that matter to us. And we will see that our feelings are made known even if it hurts others and disturbs their peace. We're willing to do that because we feel pinched a little. Oh, how diabolical we can be. So, how did Christ begin his New Testament teaching? Chapter 5 of Matthew. Seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came to him. He got away from the multitudes. He wanted to teach the disciples because he was training them to teach righteousness and peace on the earth because the religion of his day was very selfish. The Pharisees were concerned only with themselves and not with the people. They were cheating and misusing, defrauding and killing. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What he begins to describe are attitudes that lead to a desired end. We'll see that in just a moment. He says, you're warring and fighting among yourselves. He says, it will happen in the end time. The men will war and fight among themselves. He says that in the end times, perilous times will come because men are lovers of their own selves. I think we read that last week. Selfishness, or again, the big I. Because all negative emotion begins with self. Feeling pinched, feeling misused, feeling unappreciated. All those things come into play. They had with Satan, and they have with man ever since. So if there is disruption, if the peace is disturbed, Always, brethren, understand that that disturbance comes from someone's selfishness somewhere. It is the root cause of all disturbance in the universe. It began that way with Satan. And we have all drunk of that water. Muddy though it is. Because when we feel pinched or bitten, we bite back. And not always when we are bitten, but just if we feel a little pinched, we begin to bite and claw and put down and be negative. So he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who do not have a spirit of vanity and ego and pride so that they have to defend their position, so that they have to straighten out everybody else, they do not themselves feel that they are better than others, that their opinion is more important than others. They're poor in spirit. Not quick to judge, not quick to jump on others, not quick to condemn, 
or put down. That is the kind that God is looking for to put in the kingdom of heaven. Those who esteem others and their opinions and their peace better than their own. That's the kind he's looking for. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. We can mourn about the society around us. Those who, he says, those who sigh and cry for what they see around them there in Isaiah. We mourn ourselves for disturbing the peace of others, should be our attitude. In other words, it should make us feel bad and mournful any time we say something that upsets someone else, that causes them to be offended or made angry or frustrated. When we act that way, we should mourn that. Not say, well, I guess I got them. Or whatever attitude we might have toward them. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Moses was the meekest man, God said, that there was. Perhaps ever has been. God trained him very carefully and put him in a job. He was meek. He was humble. He did not get upset when he was spoken against. But God defended him. Moses was doing nothing wrong, but there were those who thought he was. And even if he was, for marrying a woman perhaps that he should not have, at least Miriam and Aaron thought he should not have. And it didn't matter whether it was right or wrong in God's eyes, it was wrong in their eyes. And they decided they would complain about it and rebel over it and give Moses a hard time about it. They didn't like, in other words, the way Moses was doing things. Do you think for a moment that God could not control Moses? Moses' life was preserved by floating around in a little raft in the water so that he would not be killed when Pharaoh said all Israelite babies had to die. Instead, he was promoted to be a prince among the Mitzrayimites. And he knew in and out their culture from the top to the bottom. And then God took him out at age 40 into the wilderness and put him through all kinds of paces and taught him himself from the time of the burning bush because Moses didn't know God either. They became acquainted. God accepted, or Moses accepted the way of God. And after 40 years of trial, tribulation, and teaching, God took him back and delivered Israel through him. But mankind around him could not understand that God could take care of Moses. So they disturbed the peace and became leprous, and on and on you know the story. 
And the people wandered in the wilderness until their carcasses fell dead because of their rebellion. God knew what he was doing all along. And God could could take care of Moses. But Moses, in some way, was pinching them. And they didn't like it, and they said so, and God dealt with it. He was meek, he didn't fight them, but God fought the battle for him, did he not? God took care of the problem. So, would Moses have been better to react against all that and fight it? Or be meek and let God take care of it? He was meek and God took care of it. He did not have to have a pitched battle. God took care of the problem. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. They will have righteousness. But there is a deep abiding desire to be righteous. Those are the ones God will bring to righteousness. Now, he's leading up to a point here. He's talking about the different attitudes we might have, the kind we ought to have, to be poor in spirit, to not feel important, to be thankful to be alive, to be thankful to have great purpose in life, and not to be faunching at the bit over pride and ego about the way other people do things, to be mournful at the things we see that are wrong, And to be meek and not fight. And to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Then the next important attitude. Verse 7 is, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now I have preached about that quite a bit over the last year or two. That we will be judged exactly as we judge others whether with mercy and love and compassion or with anger and frustration or however we approach it, that is the way God is going to judge us. If we want mercy, we had better be merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. No fraud there. No double-mindedness. Pure. Desiring the best for others. Desiring to see others live in peace and in harmony and doing whatever possible to help them with that. Being very careful not to offend or give offense. Being careful not to step on their toes. Being very careful to love them as we want to be loved. Treat them as we want to be treated. To have pure emotions of love of outgoing concern. The give way, as I spoke quite a bit about last week. If we're thinking that way, that is the kind of person God wants in His kingdom. These are the desirable things. You can compare them with Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit. The love, the joy, the peace, kindness, all those things that He tells us are things that he desires that his spirit produces. 
Now, if we're producing the lust, vanity, jealousy, pride, ego, animosity, disturbing the peace by the things we say, then that's the work of the flesh, and God does not want that in His kingdom. And He will eternally destroy those who produce the works of the flesh. Those who produce the fruit of the Spirit, He will say, Welcome to my kingdom. I am well pleased with that, just as He was with His Son. These are the things to desire. Then notice what this produces. Verse 9. All these attitudes we've just discussed come down to verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Now, if disturbing the peace is caused by vanity, ego, pride, or in a word, self, then peace is produced by lack of self, by giving, outgoing, serving, helping, encouraging, strengthening, as opposed to putting down and hurting with that sharp sword known as the tongue. God has been suffering with the selfishness of Satan and the demons, and with the selfishness of mankind for a long, long time. And he has intervened at times, lest our carnality and selfishness destroy everything that he has made. And he's about to do it again. Because mankind has not learned the lesson. He has overseen the destruction of his own church because of selfishness. That is what causes division. It is what causes hurt. It is what causes feelings to go astray. It is a lack of love and self getting in the way. What causes us to be in a position where God wants to spew us out of his mouth, which he has done? It is a lack of these attributes that we have just read about. And our own pride and vanity and ego gets in the way. And our opinion is more important than anyone else's. And we want to be comfortable. And when we are comfortable, we want to go nighty-night. So we went to sleep at the switch spiritually. And as a result, became lukewarm or asleep. They all slumbered and slept. Asleep at the switch spiritually. And God threw cold water in our face and booted us out of bed and let us go hungry with a famine of the Word so that we might become poor in spirit, mournful, meek, hunger and thirst after righteousness, merciful to others, pure and not double-minded in heart, and bring peace. That's what this is all about. Now, he says he will destroy the church until over 90% is gone. We'll go into tribulation. He will draw out a remnant who are humble and meek. It says that there right at the end of the book of Zechariah. 
Zephaniah that he will preserve to himself a humble and meek people. And they will come to his together as a remnant and rebuild the church better than it was. And in Haggai 2, he says, In this place will I bring peace. Now, speaking from a physical standpoint, I believe that we are on the edge of that area he's talking about where those people will come and he will cause peace. How does he do that? He brings it about by putting us through so much trouble, tribulation, trial, difficulty, and hard times that we surrender to his will and to his spirit and begin to produce the attitudes we just read about. Then we are ready to create peace. As long as I and selfishness is in our way, brethren, we cannot live in peace. Remember what I said. Any time there is disruption and disturbance of the peace, someone somewhere is being selfish. That is the root cause. The root is what the plant springs from. Bitterness is described as having a root. A root of bitterness, Paul says there in Hebrews, is Esau had. Why? Because he felt himself impinged upon. He did not like what Jacob and Rachel did to him. And even today, the sons of Esau are going to do everything they can to destroy Jacob. And it's happening before our very eyes. Because that root of bitterness and selfishness has always been there. Now, Jacob and Rachel acted selfishly too. And they contributed to the disturbance of the peace in that family by taking things into their own hands rather than letting God take care of the birthright in the way that God wanted to. Had they not been selfish and she had not shown favoritism to Jacob, God would have worked that out so that what he wanted to go to Jacob would have gotten there. But when they disturbed the peace of the family by lying, cheating, and stealing, it was something Esau simply was unable to get over because of his own selfishness. So that whole embroiled thing was over selfishness on the part of everyone involved. It never fails. It is always there. If we want peace, we have to put self aside and have these attitudes. Now, we can blame others for disturbing the peace, but it's always a two-sided coin, isn't it? We all do things that are selfish. We all have our own selfish motivations. 
But God is going to strip away, and has been, all the things that we knew and loved even in the church. Until we finally are humbled and become meek and quit biting and devouring one another and putting ourselves first. It all goes back to the Ten Commandments. Love God with all your heart and mind and love your neighbor as much as yourself. You don't like to be talked about. You don't like to be put down. Neither does your neighbor. Treat him like you want to be treated. And peace will break out. As long as selfishness is there, we cannot live in peace. Now, let's go to Psalm 28.3. I want to read three scriptures here. Let's kind of encapsulate this. Two of them in the book of Psalms. I want to go back to Psalm 28. We all like peace. We all like serenity. We like to be undisturbed. We don't like negative emotion. We just want to live in peace and harmony, don't we? Now, that's true of all of us, isn't it? Everybody wants those things, peace and security. But it seems like no one has them. So it must be that virtually everyone is doing all the things that destroy or disturb the peace instead of creating it. Psalm 28, verse 3. Draw me not away with the wicked and with the workers of iniquity, which speak peace to their neighbors, but mischief is in their hearts. So we tell each other, we sure wish things were more peaceful around here, but we still have selfishness in our hearts. And we do those things to take care of self at the expense of each other, and therefore we don't have that which we tell each other we want. We are self-destructive. We disturb our own peace by being selfish. And that's what the wicked are. Oh, it's easy to speak it to our neighbors and to tell them to be more peaceful and not to offend me. But we still give offense. We give and take offense. In other words, there's selfishness on both sides of the coin. So David is, is lamenting that here. Let's go to chapter 85. Peace does not come naturally. It is impossible among human beings to have peace unless that peace is created, unless it is made. Because by nature we are selfish and deceitful and put ourselves first no matter what. And that destroys peace. Chapter 85 Eternal, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. Jacob was in trouble. This is a prophecy that comes through to today. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. Does he not say that's what he will do with us? That he will remove our iniquity in one day 
in Isaiah and in Zechariah and other places. You have taken away all your wrath. He says he will have his wrath only for a moment and he will turn and give blessing to his people. You have turned yourself from the fierceness of your anger. We have been hoping that because I have been preaching from the prophecies now for 16 years, specifically. But God has turned His face from the church, and that soon He would turn it back. And we all live in hope of that, and I hope that He is. Turn us, O God, of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Turn us. Turn us from the way we have been that caused us to destroy the peace and happiness and security of even your own church. Turn us. Change us. Help us repent. And love one another. Will you be angry with us forever? Sometimes it seems that way, doesn't it? This is a now scripture. Will you draw out your anger to all generations? Is this just going to go on and on? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? They find righteousness. They seek these attitudes. Very first thing Christ told the disciples when he began to teach them. These are the attitudes I want you to have. These are the attitudes you need to be given eternal life and live forever in the kingdom of God. This is the way it's got to be, fellows. And you're supposed to go out and tell others this and hope that they believe it and follow it, not just give it lip service. Blessed are the doers, not the hearers. Show us your mercy, O Eternal, and grant us your salvation. And he is willing to do that. But he said it's contingent upon us showing mercy to others. I will hear what God the Eternal will speak, for he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints, but let them not turn again to folly. If we begin to repent and be humble and meek, forgiving, loving, merciful, seeking righteousness, he will turn his face back and bless us, but let them not turn again the minute they start feeling better to what caused the problems in the first place. Selfishness. Of whatever, in whatever form it comes. And selfishness can have many, many different forms. Surely his salvation is near them that fear him. That's where wisdom begins. That glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Righteousness produces peace. Kissing is something which indicates people like each other quite a bit. And righteousness and peace go together like a kiss of two beloved of each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Eternal shall give that which is good, and our land shall yield her increase. Righteousness shall go before him, and shall set us in the way of his steps. God says if we have everlasting peace, or peace among ourselves, 
It's because righteousness was there. Selfishness is the opposite of righteousness. The giving up of self and minding the rights of others is what produces righteousness. We do the right thing to others, for others. And that is a righteous way of living. Anything selfish produces anger, hatred, animosity, frustration, hurt feelings, and on and on it goes. Now let's go to, he says he's going to speak peace to his people. Now let's go to the book of Zechariah. And here, uh, well, actually the whole chapter, but I, I don't want for sake of time to to spend that here right now. We've been through it before, but let's skip down to Zechariah 9 and uh, principally verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes to you. He is just and having salvation. Lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Now, mankind has generally looked down upon asses, the animal, through history. And if someone doesn't like you, then they're liable to call you an ass. That's just the way it has been. And it has come to mean not only a four-legged animal, but the posterior of a human being. Because that's not a comely part of the human being. Christ lived what he preached to the disciples there in Matthew 5. He was willing to ride not a... Seventeen hands tall war horse, beautiful and spirited, but a lowly donkey. And when God really wanted to get a point across, he spoke through an ass, Balaam's. Christ was willing to be humble, to be meek, to put himself below others by riding on the most uh, unwell-thought-of mode of transportation there was around. Why can we rejoice in that he humbled himself and was meek and died for us so that our sins might be removed? Wow. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. Those are signs of war, or the means of war. And the battle bows shall be cut off, beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, as it says in Micah. And he shall speak peace to the heathen, and his dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river even to the ends of the earth. So he's speaking peace to us now, brethren. He's telling us to be meek, to be humble, to be poor in spirit, to mourn, to love each other as we would love ourselves, to be merciful and kind to one another, and to create peace through that selflessness instead of selfishness. And then he will take war away from us, and we will rejoice greatly. 
And we will shout, daughter of Jerusalem sitting here before me, with happiness and joy and peace. For in this place will I bring peace, he says. But peace has to be preceded with these attitudes. And that's why the church has been going through what it's been going through. And I will submit to us that we have had a pretty tumultuous year this past year because we do not yet have enough of Matthew 5, any of us. And therefore God has had to rattle our cage a bit and shake our tree a bit because if he can use us to show the world the way of peace, we must learn the way of peace. And we must come to have these attitudes that we're reading about so that the battle and the war and the fighting and the put-down and the venting and the rage and the discontent will stop. You are making me uncomfortable. You are disturbing my peace by whatever it is you are doing, we will say. And then we are offended and we are upset and then the place isn't peaceful anymore. There's cause and effect. As I said before, peace does not come automatically. It comes through hard work of putting the self aside and giving, serving, and loving others. We're here to do that, and we shall. And if we don't, we shall not be here. That's just the way it is. That's the way it is. We can't run from it. We can't hide from it. We can't deceive ourselves. We cannot justify ourselves. And we cannot be self-righteous. I played those sermons because I think they are very, very important, even though you don't like to listen to tapes, to the way things are with God's church and with our congregation in that church. We have to make a stand and create peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. Now, this is possible. Let's not be discouraged. Let's understand. I'm not upbraiding us. I'm not chewing on us. I'm not angry at us. I'm just telling us, here is why we have a problem that we might have, and here is how we fix it. We need to understand what needs to be done if we're going to fix something. It's easy, as that one psalm said, to speak peace and say, oh, come on now, you've got to be more peaceful than that. You've got to fix things. Quit disturbing my peace. We approach it generally selfishly. No, we have to approach it as Christ said. If we want results, we've got to do it His way. And He knows. He had peace throughout the universe until one being started getting selfish. And it wrecked that peace. And it happened all over again in the garden. And it happened throughout man's society. And man was destroyed. And it started all over again. And this is going to continue until people begin to have the same attitudes as Matthew 5. Let's go to Matthew 24. 
Because Noah's story is very, very real today as we sit here. Matthew 24, verse 37. He's talking about the returning of Christ. And he says, But of that day and hour, in verse 36, knows no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But, as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. That the earth will have degenerated again at the end, in spite of all the things God has done, and even the captivity several times of Israel, where they would not obey God, and He humbled them in Egypt, or Mitzrayim, and in Babylon. On and on it goes, where God would have to take everything away and humble them, and they would be good for a little while, <laughs> and then human nature <laughs> would take over again. It says right at the end, it's going to be the same way as it was in Noah's day, an earth filled with violence, where man's thoughts were nothing but selfishness, and I'll get mine, dog-eat-dog, however you want to phrase it. Selfishness is the bottom line. We're in a very selfish, materialistic society today. I want mine now. I want. I deserve it. I'm going to get it. I'm going to have it. And I don't care who I step on to get it. I will have my way. And my way is better than your way. That is arrogance, pride, vanity, and ego. What makes your way better than someone else's? Your mindset on it. Your attitude about it. That's the only thing that makes it better. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. They never got a clue. They never heard or listened to the stupidity that Noah was spouting in their ears. They went on about their lives, selfishly stealing, cheating, defrauding, killing one another, until the rains came. He says it'll be the same way at the end time. They'll go on thinking their way is okay, in spite of the war and the violence and the lack of peace, until destruction comes. He says, watch, be careful, be alert. Brethren, let us not go on as others have. Let us be different. Let us not repeat over and over again what has been the process from Satan's first rebellion through all the years of the history of mankind. With the exception of a few notable individuals mentioned in Hebrews 11 and a few others. Not yet 144,000 have completely gone the way of God and committed themselves to Matthew 5, and loving God above everything, 
and loving their neighbor as themselves. So very few individuals in history have done that. Only one in Noah's day. Not very many at other times. Elijah thought he was the only one. God said, no, they've got 7,000 more. So there may be a few more today than meets the eye. And they will be gathered soon. But they will be called upon to bring peace. And it will have to be God who brings it by causing them to go through all kinds of horror, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, and physically, until they are meek and humble, poor in spirit, contrite, merciful, kind, compassionate, seeking righteousness, and then they will put self aside and create peace. That is what he is going to do. And then he is going to turn, as we saw in Zechariah, and speak peace to the heathen. And you know what? They won't listen either. No more than 90% of the church is not listening today. And over 90% of the people on the face of this earth are going to die because they will not listen to the two witnesses who are telling them there's a way to peace, but you're going about it the wrong way. Go about it the way those church people are doing it at Zion and Jerusalem, and you will have peace. That's what you all want. World peace. Your way. The selfish way. And you will destroy yourselves from the face of the earth unless you learn God's way of peace. And they will not listen. And they will be humbled and killed. And the 10%, less than 10 really, who survive to go into the millennium will have gone through famine and pestilence, horrible privation, may have eaten their own children to sustain life to make it to the millennium. And then they will be ready to be taught. Well, some will. Others will not go up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. They will not have been humbled enough yet to do it God's way. How obstinate, how obdurate, how selfish is human nature, and so full of pride and ego that no matter what they go through, they will maintain their mindset for themselves. We are so stubborn about taking care of self first. Just as people. It takes a great deal of striving after righteousness to get past our human nature. It is so easy to walk in the flesh. So very easy. It's like falling off a log. It is so very hard to walk in the Spirit, to be close enough to God, to be filled with His Spirit so that we have His attitudes instead of what our human mind produces. But it's possible. That's why we have a Savior. That's why we have someone who came and lived and died for us and is at the right hand of the throne of His Father in heaven today to encourage us, to strengthen us, 
to hear us if we will but turn to Him. But as human beings, we had trouble repenting and even coming into His church. Once in His church, we had trouble giving up ourselves and being humble and merciful and kind and poor in spirit and mournful and all these things. And God had to spew us out of His mouth. And even yet, over 90% will still be unwilling to set self aside and come to have the attitudes of Matthew 5. It will only be a small percentage. Brethren, let's be in that percentage. Satan persists. Revelation 20. He has not changed his attitude. He has not repented. He preys upon human beings. Before the kingdom of God can come in righteousness, he is going to be bound. Revelation 20, verse 2. He laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. And we know the scriptures that show that then there will be peace. Because that poison selfishness of Satan and the demons will be bound up and kept from us. And the Spirit of God will cover the earth. And people will learn to live and walk in the Spirit. And it will produce peace and security and happiness for all mankind except for a few salty, miry places, Ezekiel says, where people won't. But for the most part, the earth will live in peace for a thousand years. Then what happens? Verse 7, And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations. And then they go up and make war against God's kingdom and God's people. And then, verse 10, he's cast into a lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet were and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. He started this whole thing of selfishness. And God had given him immortality or life that does not end and will not take it away. Because of his selfishness, he will be tortured forevermore. Thankfully, God has made us human and we can die. And if we will not accept his way and make peace and do the things that create peace, he will put us in a lake of fire and we will burn up and be forgotten. And that will be the end of it. Because he will not anymore tolerate selfishness in the universe. Not at all. It has to go away. Condemnation, judgment, pride, ego, vanity, hurt feelings, all has to go away. They are all based on self. And we will learn sooner or later, to love God with all our heart and to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves and treat them with the respect and kindness and love and speak nice things about them and not speak bad things about them. That's what we're here to learn. 
peace is coming to the remnant church of God. And the reason it is coming is because we are going to begin to react, not out of vanity, jealousy, ego, and self, but be poor in spirit and meek and mournful and kind and loving and merciful. And as a result, we are going to live in peace. We might as well start now. Because that's what God says has to happen. And those who will not do so are going to go into the tribulation and see the sword and famine and disease and be humbled. And some will repent during that time. Zechariah seems to indicate about 30% of the church will repent in that tribulation and give up self and come to have the attitudes of Matthew 5. That's what it's really all about. That's all we need to do. It's so simple. It's so direct. It's so hard to love Everyone here in this room and others elsewhere, as much as we love ourselves. That takes a lot of prayer. It takes a lot of reading of these words of God, because we will not come by it naturally. We will try to get along, but we will fail. If we do not make God the center of our universe, and if we do not... Pray diligently, desperately, to have the attitudes Christ said we need to have. Peace does not come. Peace is made. We complain about the way things are around here. We complain about the way Daryl is. We complain about this. We complain about that. The only ones who can fix it are ourselves, individually coming to love God with all our heart and our neighbor as ourself. That is the way peace will come to this congregation. And it will not come unless we do that. Now, is that clear? If we're going to have peace, we have to make it. And then we will be blessed for it. <laughs>